And so today, as we're walking through this text and talking about these topics, keep in mind as well, we're also going to celebrate communion here this morning, which communion is a way that we uh, confess to the world and, and believe that Jesus is the Lord, the way that we express our communion with Him, but also our communion and our unity with one another. And ultimately, that's what Paul's talking about, is to not be a divided church, but be united around the principles and the values and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so after we look at the text here today, we're going to break bread, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to do what the uh, believers in the old times used to call a love feast, where when they would break bread together, they would have a feast or a potluck, what we would call today, and they would just share time together. They would work through issues together. They would uh, encourage each other in victories and mourn alongside others with defeats. And so we're going to practice all those things. But the whole point of this is that Paul is stressing that the church in Corinth be united in faith. Yes, you have many problems, but let's unite around the cross and let's start there. So despite whatever problems we may have here at Clayton Community Church, this is my address to you as well that no matter what problems we have as a church, no matter what grievances you might have or what um, issues we might have, that we all need to rally around the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ together. Let's start there. So let's say a word of prayer and we'll dig right in. Father in heaven, be gracious to us, us sinners, those who fall way short of your glory, those who even after redemption are still enticed by sin and on occasion stumble and fall. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for falling short. But Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in you, God, that your grace builds us up, that brings us back time and again, that though we fail, we are inspired to grow closer to you, that in our guilt and our conviction of sin, thanks to the Holy Spirit and thanks to the church. God, that we can draw closer to you and in doing so, really truly know what is life. We thank you for the deposit of eternal life, of salvation. We thank you for the promise to be with us as our, as our friends, as our Savior, as our teacher, as our God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for your constant counsel through your word, which you have made available to even the most common person. I pray, God, that you continue to send your word out across this, this globe, that those who don't have the word in their language, Lord, that, that they would have an encounter with you and through missionary work, that, that they might come to know you through your word. So I pray for your success, God. We know you're going to succeed, but we're, we're in communion with you, God, and we long for your success. We long for the return of your Son. We long for evil uh, to be brought to bear. And so, Father, teach us now in this hour. Help us to know what is truly wisdom and help us to be united as a church body around those principles. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to take a quick drink of water. So chapter 1, verse 25, Paul continues, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger 
than men. I want to take a look at that one verse because there's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to this verse. Is Paul saying that God is foolish in any way? Or is Paul saying that God is weak in any kind of way? No, he is not saying God is foolish or is weak. And if you remember the context, he's discussing the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. So according to the world standards, the cross is foolish. This idea that you would come and that you would intentionally suffer, die, be tortured, uh, be lorded over by people is uh, a weak thought, especially in the Greek and Roman world of that time. But it's even a, a weak thought today. We Oftentimes when an issue arises and we see a bad guy on the scene, you know, we think, well, we, we want to come and defeat this bad guy. And we don't see our defeat as somehow winning. But yet on the cross, Christ won everything. He accomplished His purposes perfectly. He laid His own life down at the exact right time as the perfect Lamb of God who died for the sins of mankind. And so what might have felt like a loss, even to the disciples, or might have felt or been viewed as loss by the world, was actually victory. It was actually brilliant and wise what he did. So therefore, Paul is making the point. Uh, he's using a, a, a figure of speech here that this so-called foolishness of God is in actuality superior in wisdom to man's wisdom. And so suffering, death, all those things were actually good and wise and right. And so God demonstrated His superior strength through sin and through uh, death. The sin that was put on His shoulders and His death and then ultimately His resurrection. And so Paul continues this line of reasoning in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so God, uh, Paul is making the point that God called even the lowly Corinthians. He calls on them to consider the way that they themselves were called. And first of all, it's important for us to clarify what he means by calling. Does this mean that somebody wrote him a letter and, and sent them to to go to a certain place, or as, as we would say, well, you know, your grandma's calling on the phone. What does he mean by this? So a calling, according to the Scripture, is an agreement of lifestyle and purpose, especially through the context of a relationship. So, for example, when you enter into a marriage covenant relationship, you are not only agreeing to, to be their, their devoted spouse, but you're also agreeing to assimilate your life to that person's life. 
that you are, are no longer your own person, your own autonomous individual person, but rather you belong to another. That you are to be faithful to them. That it is your dedication to be their bride or their husband and to help encourage them up in the Lord. That you are no longer doing things the way that you think they should be done. Now you have to negotiate and talk about putting the toothpaste where you can agree it should go. Or talk about as far as who's doing the laundry. And I mean, it's really a relationship. And when you're married, you are called to live differently than you would if you lived as a single person. And so in the same way, when God calls us, when He beckons us to come, He is calling for us to enter into that marriage relationship as a church with Christ. And in doing so, we have a change of life. We are no longer living for ourselves, for our self-pleasure, but rather we're living for Him, His will, and His glory. And so to be called means that you do indeed enter into that relationship. It's not just a subtle feeling. It's not just a feeling that says, oh, I'll go here and I'll buy and sell over there and I'll do this and that and the other thing. But rather it is, I am with Christ. He has purchased me for a price. I am His. He is mine. And I live for Him. I no longer live for myself. And so, he was calling on the Corinthian church to remember this. Because if you remember back in verse 9, he said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Which, this is the pure definition of a calling. And so the Corinthian church had entered into that relationship. Paul was a witness to that. And he was calling on them to remember. Remember that calling, brothers and sisters. Then he said, the way that you were called, not many of you were wise, at least according to the worldly standards. So apparently not many of the Corinthian converts were these intellects or these scholars or statesmen or or people of of great renown. They were just kind of average Joes who were called off the street. God called them anyway. He says not many of them were powerful. So in terms of ability, not many of them were apparently very skilled in their trade or or, uh, exceedingly competent to, to be viewed as someone who is powerful and effective in what they do. They're just, again, average Joes, but God called them anyway. And not many were of noble birth. Apparently not many had a birthright in which they could be counted as one of the elites in society or of the ruling class or to have access to a large network of people. But yet God called them anyway. And so we can say that a vast majority of the people who were called to be followers of Christ were ordinary folks much like you and me. And certainly there were some among them who were wise because if you notice his wording here, not many of you. So a vast majority of the people were ordinary folks. That doesn't mean there weren't nobility among them. That doesn't mean there weren't those who were very skilled in their trade, top echelon type workers among them. It also doesn't mean that there weren't those who were scholars or um, academics. But a vast majority of the people that he called from the Corinthian church were regular, ordinary folks. 
But when you think about strategy, and many of us do, especially when it comes to maybe your own personal affairs and your own business, oftentimes we think in terms of, okay, who is the most qualified already to, to fit that role? Who is somebody I could hire today who would come in and maybe even do a better job than I could do at that job? Oftentimes we think strategically that way, that we're, we're looking for certain skills and intangibles and, and talents for, for people to already have before we hire them. And so if you're thinking strategically, you wonder, well, why would God go and choose a bunch of ordinary folks who aren't that gifted or talented or powerful or they don't really have a network, they aren't connected really, they're just kind of regular people working their job. So why would God choose such people? And also, why would Paul say this? Isn't this kind of an insult to that church? And as they're reading this letter, I'm not ordinary, I'm special. I mean, don't we all want to feel like we're special? Right? In, in this world, we want to feel like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm awesome, I'm great. But yet he's writing this letter, when God called you, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. And you certainly weren't of nobility. But this is the way that the world thinks. This is not the way that God thinks. God, God's ways are higher. His thoughts are greater than ours. He did it this way, and He has done it this way throughout redemptive history so that no man could boast in his own ability over God's power to do awesome things. Because God's supremacy, part of His supremacy, is not only demonstrated in the fact that He created all that we see. I mean, can you replicate what He has created? None of us can. I mean, the Hubble telescope is showing us images of the galaxy that are just phenomenal, mind-bending, mind-blowing. And none of us can claim to create the same. Not nearly even close. But also when it comes to organizing people to accomplish a purpose, God also demonstrates His superiority in this as well. And that He can take any old group of regular people and He can accomplish amazing things. In fact, can accomplish greater things than even the world's champions. He can flip the script on common human success and He can bring about wins and victories that dumbfound even the most elite thinkers. It has been this way from the beginning. For example, God chose and called Moses. And Moses, he called him, even though he was a stutterer and a stamina, uh, a stammering, like I just did now, a stammering public speaker. He, he was not confident in his public speaking abilities. But God chose him and he said, you're going to march up to the supreme leader and ruler of the world at that time, which is Pharaoh, and you are going to demand that he releases my people. I mean, do you get nervous to come up front and talk to people? Most people do. Most people are scared to death about it. Moses was scared to death about it. But yet he called him to go up to the supreme ruler of the world at that time and rebuke him and demand release. So God called Moses even though he was not the most equipped person to do it. And God accomplished his purposes. And God was glorified. 
And Moses cannot boast that he used articulate words or a great argument or a great salesman trick that caused his people to be released. No, all glory goes to God. Moses got to participate. That was his glory. He got to participate in God's plan. God also used the reluctant prophet Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, the lost Ninevites who were Assyrians, who were enemies of Israel. God chose Jonah and said, you will go to these people and you will preach to them a message of repentance. And he was reluctant. He didn't want to go. We all know the story how God wedged him into the belly of a great fish. And in his reluctance, he, he prayed and asked God forgiveness and the great fish spewed him out onto the land and he's like, okay, I'll go. And he reluctantly went. And even though he was probably a great speaker, you want to know his sermon to the people of Nineveh? 40 days and you will die. That's it. Jonah out. And why did he do it that way? Because he was reluctant. He knew the character of God. He knew God was gracious, but he knew God wanted him to preach to his enemies, the Assyrians, who had killed his brethren. He wanted him to go and to, and to preach a message of repentance and God's grace to them. And Jonah was reluctant because he did not want God's grace to fall upon them. He did not want them to repent. He wanted them to perish and to be judged for what they have done. So knowing this, he was reluctant. But yet, even in his bare minimum sermon, you know what God did? He caused that entire place to turn from their sins, to repent, to fast, to tear their clothes. Oh God, what, what have we done? We believe in you. Even the king of Nineveh released a decree that all people everywhere repent and turn from their sin and worship the one true God. And at least for 200 years, that place repented and followed God. And so, was it Jonah? Was it his skill that brought about salvation in Nineveh? No, it was God. God called Jonah not to be a skilled person, but to be an obedient person and to follow him. And God worked wonders through that. God also used a young shepherd boy who was too small to wear the armor of a grown soldier to slay the Philistine champion. We all know that from childhood. Was it his skill that brought it about? It was God. It was God who brought that about. God once cut Israel's army from 32,000 men to 300 men to defeat the superior army of the Midianites. Was it the, those 300 men who accomplished that, or was it God with them who accomplished that victory? It was God. And then Jesus himself, when he came and ministered on earth, he didn't call the, the highest Pharisees to come and join him, but rather he called a diverse group of ragtag men to be his apostles and to ultimately change the world. Were they successful? Were they effective in their ministry and in their calling? I'd say our very presence here this morning, the very fact that we're reading the Word of God, that we're singing praises to God, we're encouraging one another to live faithful lives, I'd say that they succeeded. But yet they were not the greatest of people. Many of them were just common fishermen. And I think a lot of people here can identify with that. 
I just want to go fishing. That's all I ever want to do is just go fishing. God called Andrew, Peter, James, John, who were all fishermen. He even called a tax collector, Matthew, also known as Levi, who the tax collectors were seen as those who have betrayed their country, those who have um, betrayed their fellow brother, because they were collecting taxes for Roman occupiers from their own people. Yet Christ looked at Matthew and he called him. He called him to be one of those who would come and change the world. I bet Matthew probably thought there would be no chance of redemption. That none of his brothers would ever look on him with any kind of honor or respect ever again. But when he followed Christ, he did such a work in Matthew. He called even political activists, Simon the Zealot, he was constantly uh, going and protesting and picketing um, all the evils of the time. He called him to join him. And he even called a thief who ultimately would betray Christ, but he played a very important role in Christ's plan. Then he called other regular people. But ultimately, we look at God's will and we look at his plan throughout redemptive history. And he has done this from the beginning of time. He has chosen ordinary people those who should not be given a second chance, those who are weak, those who are not of nobility, he has chosen such people to carry out his purposes. So that even today, that as you and I are here this morning, and we don't consider ourselves to be anybody of well repute, maybe we're just common people, we feel that, but yet there's some God's call where we know we're a part of something special, where he is calling us to do very special things. Charles Spurgeon, well, uh, many people called the Prince of Preachers because his sermons were very well put together. It is said that he used to walk up to the pulpit, and on the way to the pulpit, he would say to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And back then, the pulpits weren't just up two stairs. They were up kind of a flight of stairs, and you were in this elevated little booth that you uh, stood and you gave a sermon from. So all the way up his flight of stairs, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And he also said, if we had the Spirit sealing our ministry with power, it would signify very little about talent. Men might be poor and uneducated, their words might be broken and ungrammatical, but if the might of the Spirit attended them, the humblest evangelist would be more successful than the most learned divine or the most eloquent of speakers. Even Charles Spurgeon understood, even in all of his skill as a preacher, he understood without the Holy Spirit, he can accomplish nothing. Without God's hand in it, he can accomplish nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so unless we submit to that point, unless we come to that place of humility, we can't truly accomplish his purposes or be a part of that process. So Christ did this because that's the way He always does it, so that no man can boast over Him. But He also did this for the sake of our humility and holiness, to ultimately shame those who are prideful in their wisdom or in their knowledge. Because the heart of worship ultimately begins with humility and the recognition of God's sovereign supremacy 
over the whole world and over our lives. And this is why Paul reminds the Corinthian church, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Corinthian church, Clayton church, it is because of Him that you are saved and that you have the wisdom of God and that you are being justified, sanctified, and that one day you will be glorified. And it's because of Him. It is not by your own skill. It is not by your own effort. It is His. Nobody in Corinth, nobody in Clayton, can claim to have earned a relationship with God on our own ability. It's because of God that we've been made clean. We can't be counted righteous on our own. Even if you match the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you will not live up to the perfect holy nature of God. You have already failed at that point. At the point where you come to realize, I need to do better. You have already failed. You have already fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven, that we can be made new, and that we can truly be counted as righteous. Even in our failings, we could be counted positionally as righteous people who are practically in progress, being sanctified. And you cannot be sanctified on your own. You cannot grow in the Lord on your own effort. I can't give you, here are the five points to becoming more sanctified. A lot of people do that. I could try. And maybe you might think it will help you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's God in you who is sanctifying you. It is ultimately not your own efforts. And through the Holy Spirit, through God's gift of the church, He is sanctifying His people to be more like Christ in the world, to be salt, to be light in the world, to be the preservatives of God's good gospel and righteousness and goodness. And the problem is, if we're living like the world and we're making uh, the gospel taste sour and gross to people without being the salt. If we're not being the light of the world and we're not sharing the gospel of truth, then it's a diminished light. Or maybe even it's a strobe light that puts people in seizures. We're called to be the pure salt of the gospel to the world. You don't have the salt, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say. You are the salt. It's not a a gift given to you, but He has made you the salt of the earth. And you are meant to give the world flavor through the righteousness of the gospel. And you are called to illuminate this dark world for the, for the lost to see. And so, without God, without the Holy Spirit, without the church, you cannot accomplish those things. Obviously, we cannot earn redemption salvation for ourselves. Only one person could ever do that. One who was perfect. One who knew no sin. One who committed no sin. And that was Christ. The perfect Lamb of God. No other person in the history of mankind can be found to have lived in such perfect righteousness as Christ. And that's why He went to the cross. It was His intention all along. And so it's important for us to know that humility, coming to this mindset that really, 
The only reason why we're special is because of Christ. He makes us special. On our own, we are nothing. But with Him, we are something. And so it's important for us to recognize and, and be humble in that fact. Because humility is essential to our Christian walk, and it is necessary for any success in ministry. Consider Matthew 5.3, the Attitudes, where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poor in spirit, you might think that that means that you don't have much money, uh, but poor in spirit really means that uh, people who don't have confidence in their own flesh. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel like, um, I'm no good at anything. I always fail. I always fall short. I always tend to make people mad because I'm not as good as they would hope that I would be. Poor in spirit kind of is that, that, that genuine humility, that, that, uh, that clear view of yourself. And some people needed to be humbled in this way because it is those who are poor in spirit. Not that you're constantly just knocking on yourself and, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm so horrible. You know, there's a difference between recognizing that you need help, you need God's help, and making fun of yourself. There's a difference. But those who are poor in spirit recognize that they need God. And this is why the scripture says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because for us to be ambassadors, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we must first have that humble, foreign spirit heart, recognizing God's supremacy in all things. And this is why Paul ultimately quotes from Jeremiah 9, 23-24, which says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Humility. And I want you to notice too that Paul, he doesn't just preach at the Corinthian church, but like Christ, who called him, he sought to emulate the same humility of Christ, who in Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, says, Though Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So our Savior himself, God, in the form of man, lowered himself and he served those he came to save. He served and he loved even his enemies. And so in the same way, Paul understood that in his ministry, he had to do the same thing. He had to emulate Christ in that way, to try and humble himself, to lower himself. And so in chapter 2, Paul continues. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, did, did not, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And here's a key point. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. I want to go back to verse 2 where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was more than capable of writing and teaching lengthy dissertations about theological matters. I mean, read the book of Romans, the letter to the church at Rome, and you tell me if Paul was an intellectual guy or not. I mean, the book of Romans lays out the entire fundamental, foundational, theological uh, doctrine of the church and of mankind in general. It, it is a deep book filled with just academic truth, philosophy, all, all kinds of things. So Paul was definitely capable of teaching in plausible words and wisdom and lofty speech. I mean, he could tangle with the other Pharisees as well as anybody else. But the Bible says that he decided, and the Greek word there is krino, which ultimately means to come to a conclusion or to have a particular preference. So with the Corinthian church, he determined beforehand after he assessed who they were through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that he decided to simply preach the powerful gospel, the simple, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. But why did he hold back that lofty speech? Because certainly they were Greek people. They, they all uh, desired to be able to, to reason on that kind of a level. The, those were the people who were celebrated in their culture. Those who were well-spoken and, and could uh, quote all the philosophers and all those kind of things. Well, first of all, as any public speaking class will tell you, um, next to the message itself, the most important thing you can do is to know your audience. And as Paul already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2, the audience in the world's view were not wise, not powerful, not of nobility. So Paul knew that the pursuit of such worldly wisdom was something that was oversaturated and probably pounded into the head of all these common people. Oh, you're not smart enough. Huh? Clearly he cannot, he cannot understand with our kind of wisdom. They were already aware of the fact that they weren't on the same level as some of the the lofty people in their society. And they were probably just getting sick and tired of hearing that kind of conversation all the time. And so they must have been hungry for something different. And so Paul, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, knew that he needed to come with a simple gospel of salvation and of Christ crucified. And so through the Holy Spirit, through this intuition that God had given him, he knew that the people needed less talk and more power, more demonstrations of God's power. But also, I want you to notice in, in Paul's other writings, he does talk about some of those strategies that he used when he was ministering to people. Because um, some might say, well, if, if you decide to kind of, as some would say, dumb it down a little bit, simplify it a little bit. Some would say, well, isn't that kind of like a salesman trick or some kind of manipulation? And was, was he just manipulating them because he was like a salesman and he wanted them to buy what he's selling, so he, he kind of crafted together a, a strategic way to talk to them? Well, first of all, Paul was not selling to them a lemon product. He was not selling them something false. 
He was selling them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most valuable treasure Paul found out in the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most valuable treasure. And so as ministers of the gospel, we should use every tool at our disposal to try and preach the gospel and convince others to come and believe. But also understanding the fact that ultimately, as I said, in humility we recognize that by our own ability, we cannot achieve this. That ultimately, it's up to God. And so, Paul was selling them the gospel, which was the difference between life and death. And so, he pulled out all the stops. He was willing to deny even his, his intellect and his ability to recite a, a dissertation. He explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This was his mindset. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, but not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. In other words, he played along with their traditions, even though he recognized that he was free from that. But he did it for the sake of their salvation. It also says that to those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law but of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. And so Paul recognized that he is, he is not above any type of activity. He's not above denying his gifts or his freedoms to be able to minister to the people who are lost. And ultimately, you know what this is? That's meekness. It's meekness. Another beatitude of Jesus Christ is in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, they shall become kings leaders of the world. Now, what is meekness? A lot of people view meekness as weakness, like mousy weakness. That's not it at all. The biblical definition of meekness is to have the ability to do something, but then the wisdom to hold it back at the appropriate time. Paul was acting in meekness towards these people. He had the ability with his tongue to recite great dissertations. But in meekness, he held it back for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their souls. And so, in this way, Paul was meek. And also, I mean, we hold Paul in such high esteem today. Uh, he was one of the premier uh, scripture writers of the New Testament. He accomplished church plants throughout much of the Greco-Roman world, which we are benefiting from here today as Gentile believers. And so these are some of the reasons why uh, Paul wanted to associate himself with this humility. That he's not just calling on the Corinthian church to be humble, but he had demonstrated that himself as well. And so Paul doesn't just preach at the Corinthian church, but he also does those things as well. And finally, God 
He demonstrates his power through the word, through the spirit, because the gospel is power as it's working. The gospel is more powerful than the gifts or the abilities of man. And certain gifts of the Spirit accompanied Paul and accompanied the church and the ministers in the first century as they were sharing the gospel. We, we read throughout the book of Acts, we read these healings and these miracles and these signs that were taking place, these incredible things that happened, these accompanied the gospel message. And so God will indeed equip believers with gifts to accomplish His will. In fact, later in the Corinthian letter in chapter 12, Paul provides a list of these gifts. He says, Now there are a variety of gifts with the same Spirit, there are a variety of services with the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And also it should be pointed out that Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And when we get to chapters 12 and 14, we'll get into these uh, gifts in greater detail. But it's important to acknowledge the fact that God does empower the church through various spiritual gifts. That, and again, they're gifts from God. These are not things you earn. You cannot sit there and just pray and pray and pray and pray that God will give you a certain gift if that's not His intention. God has a plan for you. And as you step out in faith for Him, then He will show you and make more clearly to you what your gifts are and how you can use them for His righteousness sake, for His kingdom. And also, gifts quite possibly can change as well. You may not forever be the teacher guy. God may call you later on in your life to be the compassion guy or to be the discerner of spirits guy. You just have to be open to God to speak to you and to give you those gifts as you live and work. And so, all those things accompany ministry. But when Paul is talking about the power of the gospel, I don't think he's referring specifically to those things, though they are God's power. Power that God that Paul is referring to is the power of God to change hearts and minds, to take a person who was once lost and cause them to be found, to reach into the heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh, so that someone can say, "I was once one way and now I'm a different way because of Christ." That is the power of the gospel of God to change the hearts and minds and lives of human people. And so when Paul talks about how he witnessed the power of God, um, what he witnessed was people who were one way, and thanks to God, became another way. They were following sin, their own pleasure, the wisdom of the world, and then when the gospel of Jesus Christ came, 
they changed. And they were then pursuing righteousness, selflessness, grace, mercy, all the attributes of God. They were chasing after God. And though they were falling short, they were still a changed people. They were still better than they were before He came and before the Gospel came. And so that is the power of the Gospel. It really, ultimately, has nothing to do with our ability. It has everything to do with God. God is the one who changes hearts and minds. It is not us. Even in our spiritual giftedness, we have to be humble enough to recognize that fact. And so why is Paul sharing all this with them? Well, it goes back to his original thought before he segued and rabbit-trailed on this conversation about what is true wisdom, what is true knowledge, what is true power. Ultimately, it comes back to the fact that God wants us to be unified as a body of believers. He does not want us to be divided over trivial matters in the church. Rather, starting at the place of the cross, the place that changed you and me, the place that changed you from a sinner to a saint. He wants us to return to that place often and come around that throne of grace and work together on how to be united for his causes and his purposes. One of the great things about the church, one of the uh, two ordinances that he has given us, one being baptism, the other being communion, is that we come together and we get to enjoy and partake in things that we all love, food and drink. God knows we need those things. God knows that we enjoy those things. They are ultimately a gift for us. And so part of communion is not just the tradition of passing the plate and passing these with the juice, but ultimately it's about us coming together in a common bond of faith and loving each other and forgiving each other and overcoming our grievances and our differences. So that's why the early church did what was called love feasts where they would bring and cook food and invite everyone in the, in the congregation to stay, not just so that we can talk about the weather, sports, or the latest thing on the news ticker, but rather to talk about our lives with Christ, to ask each other, how are you doing? How's your family? And how's life? Are you thinking about moving? Do you need help? All these kind of things. That was ultimately the point of communion, was to celebrate our communion with Christ, thanks to the blood of Jesus and the broken body of, of Christ, but also our communion with one another. As if we're in communion with Him, we're commanded to have communion with each other. And that's why being here together is so crucial. Because God designed it that way. We cannot really grow unless we learn to live together.